Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. The Iowa caucuses are here and former President Trump is still leading in the polls. NTD's Arlene Richards reports from Iowa with the latest updates. A new voting block could make a difference in the upcoming 2024 presidential election. We take a closer look at this new demographic and its significance. Extreme weather wreaks havoc over the weekend. Hear all about the effects on travel, sports and communities. Congressional leaders unveil a short-term spending bill that would keep the federal government open until March. Now comes the rush to get it through Congress. Fears grow over Iran-backed groups starting a wider conflict with the U.S. hitting more Houthi targets in Yemen and Israel and Hezbollah trading blows over the weekend. Plus, Hamas terrorists put out a cryptic message about the hostages. The Taiwanese presidential election is over with William Lai as the winner. We look at what the Chinese regime thinks about this and what it could be planning in response. New York City is set to have a planning model focused on allowing big, reveal, big real estate to thrive. But who's booted out in that framework? And does it undermine necessities for the average residents? An economist gives us her take. This is NTD Good Morning, live from our global headquarters. Here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and good morning. Today is Monday, January 15th. Yes, and happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day, everyone. Oh yeah, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It certainly was a long battle to get that day uh, to be a federal holiday, huh? Yes, that's right. Yeah, 15 years after it was proposed, did it become law. Right, and in that time, Stevie Wonder actually de dedicated a song to Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, the song well, Happy Birthday, yeah. it's great. <laughs> All right, uh, but today is important also for another reason, of course. It's the first test of the 2024 presidential election cycle. The Iowa caucuses have long been the initial event in the party primary calendar and will play a significant role in determining former President Trump's potential comeback bid. Additionally, this could influence Republicans who are looking for an alternative candidate to rally behind. According to the latest Iowa poll from NBC News, Trump currently maintains a considerable lead over his GOP rivals. Nearly 50% of likely caucus goers list the former president as their first choice candidate. In second place comes Nikki Haley with 20% and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in third place with 16%. And some extreme weather in Iowa right now. Will the frigid air keep Iowans from caucusing tonight? And how are the candidates wrapping up before the big event? Joining us now live from the Hawkeye State is NTD's Arlene Richards. Good morning, uh, Arlene. It's really good to see you this morning. Tell us, what's the situation now in Iowa and how could it impact the caucuses tonight? Good morning, Evelyn. It is minus 15 degrees here in Iowa, and with the wind chill, it's expected to be between minus 20 and minus 30 degrees all day today. All of the candidates braved the cold over the weekend to attend in-person rallies, and they are expected to continue doing that today. Governor Ron DeSantis attended three of his four scheduled rallies, and at one of his rallies in Ankeny, he had some heavy hitters, such as Representative Chip Roy from Texas. Nikki Haley attended two rallies and canceled one in Dubuque. And former President Trump was with Doug Burgum, governor of North Dakota, who gave him this endorsement. Let's watch. 
Four years ago, I was uh, speaking on behalf of President Trump at the Iowa caucuses in Sioux City. And today, I'm here to do something that none of the other presidential primary candidates have done. And that's endorse Donald J. Trump for the President of the United States of America. Also, Senator Marco Rubio endorsed the president over the weekend. President Trump told all of his supporters to stay vigilant. Let's watch. And you're one point down, okay? You're one point down. You have to get out and you have to vote, vote, vote. So brave the weather and go out and save America because that's what you're doing. This is really about saving our country. Yeah, thanks for those updates. And Arlene, you and your team will be braving the cold tonight uh, to cover the caucuses. So where will you be and what can we expect? We will be at Governor Ron DeSantis' watch party. And we will be coming to you live during NTD's special coverage from 8 p.m. to midnight tonight with our hosts Tiffany Meyer and Steve Lance. We are expecting it to be an exciting evening with a lot of hopefuls rooting for the Florida governor. We will be tracking the votes as they come in and providing you with all the latest updates. Back to you. Right. You certainly have a long day ahead of you. So thank you so much for coming in this early and stay warm. Arlene Richards. Trump also made an unannounced stop in Waukee and delivered pizza to the fire department. And Nikki Haley on Sunday received endorsement from former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, saying he feels she is the strongest chance for Republicans to win in November. And as candidates make their last appeals to voters, Iowa residents are weighing their words and deciding how to cast their votes. Let's hear what they have to say. The Iowa GOP caucus is finally here. Candidates have braved the harsh weather conditions to make their final pleas to residents of Iowa. What are Hawkeye state voters looking for in their chosen candidate? I really think that Trump would be the best candidate because he can deal with the world leaders and um, the business aspect of things. This supporter of Nikki Haley likes the candidate's chances going into the caucus. I think she has a strong chance. I don't think Trump has nearly the following people think he does, or maybe I'm just hopeful. Um, and of the remaining candidates, I think she's tra her tra trajectory is in the right way direction. This voter has a complicated reason for supporting Vivek Ramaswamy, but it could represent a similar view that others share. I voted for Trump last time. Um, I just don't think they're going to let him win. I, and, and honestly, what I would love to see is I would love to see Trump as president again, and I would love to see uh, Vivek as vice president. This supporter of Ron DeSantis sees the Florida governor as someone who can unite Republicans. We also feel like he's someone that can help unite the party instead of tearing it down. Uh, so for us, that's a really big piece. Um, in terms of, of the Republican movement, I feel like DeSantis really is uh, someone who we can be excited about. Uh, I think he has a lot of what Trump offered initially without a lot of the negative criticism uh, that Trump would follow with after. GOP supporters have a wide variety of reasons for getting behind their chosen candidate. Now only time will tell which candidate had the broadest appeal across Iowa. Getting excited about this election here. So there's a new block of voters emerging that could play a defining role in the upcoming 2024 presidential election. 
The hidden voting block is a demographic that only shows up to vote if their preferred candidate is on the ballot. I dug deeper into the significance of these kinds of voters. Take a look. We're bringing in Janice Heisel, a reporter for the Epic Times, to tell us more about this hidden voting block. So good morning, Janice. It's good to see you. First of all, what do you mean when you say they're hidden? So that means they're also not represented in the polls right now? Well, some pollsters do just sort of cut out these people because this special group of voters that a pollster named Rich Barris has identified, he's calling them the Trump or bust voters. And what he means by that is these are people who will only show up to vote when President Trump is on the ballot. They are excited about politics because of him. And when he's not on the ballot, they really don't care. I talked to um, one of these ladies who uh, fits that pattern. She did not vote in the midterms, but she did come out for the presidential elections in 2016 and 2020, but not 2022 midterm and not in the 2018 midterm. So do you have some insights on their demographics then, or is it just, is, is there a specific demographic to this or is it value-based? What can you tell us about that? It's just across the board, people who um, were previously not interested in politics. I spoke to a college professor who told me that a lot of people considered politics to be boring, not relevant to them. But when President Trump came along, he started to make it relatable. Even though he's a billionaire, as odd as it might seem, he does seem to have a way, according to this professor and many others, of connecting with the average person. Now, a lot of people say that relates to the fact that uh, before he entered politics, President Trump was a real estate developer, and he would actually go to construction sites and talk to the workmen there, for example, and, and just liked kind of mixing it up with the quote-unquote everyday people. And that has appealed to a lot of those people who previously didn't take any interest at all in politics. So bottom line here, how do you think this hidden voter uh, voting block will affect the election this year? Do you think we're in for any surprises? Well, the reason it's hidden is because these people are considered, quote unquote, less likely because they haven't shown up in previous elections. Now, a lot depends on if those people look at the polls and they think, oh, he's so far ahead in the polls that they don't need my vote. That's a danger uh, President Trump has acknowledged, um, that people shouldn't have that attitude. And so that could be an unpleasant surprise for him if those people start to become overconfident in his victory. So once again, it's one of those deals where we just have to wait and see. The polls are not any kind of a crystal ball, but what they are is a snapshot in time. And at this time, it does look like those voters are very motivated to come out on Election Day in support of President Trump. Understood. So let's see how that plays out. Thank you so much, Janice Heisel. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Heavy snow blanketed roads, driveways, and streets over the weekend. This after a severe winter storm brought many cities in the United States to a near standstill. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the cold snap. Dangerous freezing temperatures affected sports events and travel across the country. Driving in Oklahoma on Sunday was a matter of utmost caution with nearly whiteout conditions. Roads in Wapalo, Iowa, were nearly impassable as snowdrifts and ice covered the roadways. In Portland, Oregon, a winter storm caused a tree to smash a police cruiser. Over a hundred trees toppled near Portland on Saturday, including one that fell on a house and killed a man. 
On the other side of the country in Portland, Maine, a neighborhood landmark was washed away during a record high tide. Millions were under the threat of flooding from days of heavy rain and snow. An airport in Buffalo is hit by fierce winds and snow-covered runways, forcing it to cancel over 100 flights. And the Buffalo Bills-Pittsburgh Steelers NFL playoff game had to be postponed from Sunday to Monday. Here, steam from a large cloud of water vapor hovers over Lake Michigan as an Arctic blast from Canada swept across the United States. The blast led to power outages for hundreds of thousands of customers in the Northeast and Pacific Northwest. The Arctic storms also left four dead. The National Weather Service has issued a stark warning with over 95 million people under wind chill advisories and some states expecting wind chills to plummet to a bone chilling minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Leader Chuck Schumer unveiled a new short-term spending bill yesterday. It would keep the government funded in a two-step process through March 1st and then again through March 8th. This proposal would replace another short-term funding bill set to expire this Friday. Schumer says he expects to bring the new bill to the Senate as early as tomorrow. House conservatives are upset with the legislation, with several voicing their concerns on social media. If passed, the bill would fund several agencies through March 1st. The rest of the government, including the Defense Department, would be funded through March 8th. The stopgap proposal must still make it through Congress before heading to President Biden's desk. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry plans to step down by this spring. CNN confirmed Kerry is leaving the post after three years at the helm during the Biden administration. The 80-year-old once served as Secretary of State. He also won the 2004 Democratic nomination for president before losing the general election to President George W. Bush. As the Climate Envoy, he led U.S. negotiations at three international climate summits. Sources told CNN Kerry will attend the World Economic Forum later this month. He's also expected to attend the Munich Security Conference in February. Next up, a big moment for Taiwan over the weekend. Voters have chosen their next leader, exactly the man the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want. How did the Chinese regime respond to Taiwan's choice? And how will this election affect the China-Taiwan relationship? An expert breaks it down. And who is William Lai? He has been known for his staunch defense of the island's sovereignty, the election's outcome destined to shape future Taiwan-China relations for the next four years. Good to have you back. Taiwan just elected a new president and exactly the man that its communist neighbor doesn't want in power. William Lai's win makes the first election of the year a triumph against the totalitarian regime in Beijing and also marks an unprecedented third consecutive term for Lai's party, the DPP. In his victory speech, Lai reiterated Taiwan's direction, expressing determination to uphold democracy and freedom on the island, even under threats from the Chinese Communist Party, and that Taiwan is not a bargaining chip between the United States and China. 
Taiwan just chose the man that will shape his relations with China and the U.S. for the next four years, William Lai. In his victory speech, Lai thanked Taiwan's 23 million people. Between democracy and authoritarianism, we will stand on the side of democracy. The Republic of China, Taiwan will continue to walk side by side with democracies from around the world. Worth noting, Beijing did not favor Lai to win. China has framed the election as Taiwan's choice between peace and war, and the regime has said Lai would bring Taiwan closer to war. The communist regime sees Taiwan as part of China, despite never having controlled it. Lai has been a staunch defender of Taiwan's self-governing status. I will act in accordance with our democratic and free constitutional order in a manner that is balanced and maintains the status quo. At the same time, we're also determined to safeguard Taiwan from continuing threats and intimidation from China. An expert said that by choosing Lai, the people of Taiwan hope to keep the status quo and reject Beijing's rule. They do not embrace a simplistic binary view of war and peace and aspire to forge their own path. Ultimately, we don't necessarily have to see Taiwan as being sandwiched between the United States and China in their competition. Lai won 40 percent of the vote, Hou Yuyi from the main opposition party taking 33 percent. Third-party candidate Ko Wenjue won 26 percent. We may be sad, but we must not be discouraged. We must transform the power of indignation into the forces of supervision over the Democratic Progressive Party. His victory marks the first time ever that a political party in Taiwan gets to stay in power after two terms. Lai will be sworn in this May, succeeding current President Tsai Ing-wen. During his campaign, Lai pledged to work closely with the U.S. and bolster Taiwan's defenses. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken congratulated William Lai on his victory, writing on X that the U.S. also congratulates the Taiwanese people for participating in free and fair elections and demonstrating the strength of their democratic system. Former U.S. National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley weighed in on Lai's victory today. He told Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen that the U.S. looks forward to continuity in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship under the new administration and that U.S. commitment to the island is rock solid. Taiwan's democracy has set a shining example for the world, a democratic success story based on transparency, the rule of law, and respect for human rights and freedoms. Beijing responded quickly to William Lai's win, <clears throat> claiming the victory doesn't represent the island's mainstream public opinion because Taiwan is part of China. China accused the U.S. of sending a gravely wrong signal to those supporting Taiwan's independence. That's after Secretary of State Antony Blinken congratulated President-elect William Lai. The Chinese regime claimed Blinken's words violated U.S. commitment to maintain unofficial ties with Taiwan. And Russia's foreign ministry is also chiming in its spokeswoman saying Moscow will continue to view Taiwan as an integral part of China. Worth noting, the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled Taiwan. And so who is William Lai? Taiwan's new president-elect has been known for his staunch defense of the island's sovereignty, something Beijing considers a red line. Let's take a closer look. The new president-elect has been in politics for decades.
Throughout his career, Lai has become known for his outspoken rhetoric. He was once considered even tougher against China than President Tsai Ing-wen, who he served with as vice president. In his speech last year, he insisted that Taiwan is already independent. Therefore, there is no need to declare it. The pragmatic acceptance is that Taiwan is already a sovereign, independent country, and there is no need to separately declare Taiwan independence. Taiwan and China are not subordinate to each other, and only Taiwan's 23 million people can decide their future. That view draws anger from China. Back in August, Beijing called him a, quote, troublemaker. That's in response to his brief but official stop in the U.S. on his way to Paraguay. The South American nation is one of only 13 countries that still maintains formal ties with Taiwan. Taipei threw the remark back at Beijing, responding that China is the real troublemaker. Pointing to its standoff this month with the Philippines and its continued military harassment of Taiwan. Although known for his hawkish attitude towards China, Lai appears to be taking more subtle approach since starting his election preparation. Just days ago, Lai pledged that he would keep Taiwan's status quo if he was elected. We should strengthen our own strength and unite and cooperate to ensure peace. Lai pledged during his campaign that he'll stick to President Tsai's path. That means staying open to the possibility of talks with China and maintaining peace and the status quo. At the same time, pledging to defend the island and reiterating that only its people can decide Taiwan's future. Here's a look at her stance at an earlier campaign rally for Lai. I want to ask you all here, does anyone want war? Nobody wants war. Do we want peace? Everyone wants peace. Look at Hong Kong and think of Taiwan. We don't want Hong Kong-style peace. We want dignified peace. Everyone, am I right? Beijing enacted a national security law on the city of Hong Kong in 2020. Since then, critics have pointed to a fast-paced erosion of democratic freedoms in the former British colony. That's despite the promise of Hong Kong's autonomy for at least 50 years under a one-country, two-systems framework when it was handed back to Chinese rule in 1997. China made the same offer to Taiwan, but the island staunchly denies Chinese sovereignty. So joining me now for more is Gregory Copley. He's a president of the International Strategic Studies Association. Good morning. Good to see you. So first, tell good us morning. a little bit about, good morning, what message and signals does this election result send to China? Well, it sends to China the clear message that Xi Jinping made the wrong approach in trying to influence this election so openly and was then seen to fail in that attempt. So Xi Jinping now has one more embarrassment to add to his list, one more failure which for which he will be punished by the elders of the uh, Communist Party of China. So he is now in a much more precarious position than he was uh, even a few weeks ago and it was already a, a dire situation for him then. So he is now going to have to be looking for ways to shore up his position. There will clearly be some more blustering with regard to Taiwan, mm. more uh, PLA forces deployed to 
give the appearance of a bold response to the election, but he dare not go much beyond that because the PLA will start to object and the their party elders will almost certainly uh, start to move against him if he's uh, if he is too precipitate. Right, and I think that's an interesting point when you speak of embarrassment and maybe even some pressure that I hear uh, from the CCP party and maybe even uh, Chinese people because did um, because uh, Xi Jinping has been promising for a long time to reunify, so to speak, China and Taiwan. So with that in the background and China warning that the choice would be one between war and peace, how do you think China will be reacting now? Well, the, the party elders and the PLA basically pushed Xi to admit, as he did in San Francisco recently, that the PLA was not ready for war with Taiwan. Uh, and that's perhaps a, a gross understatement. Uh, now he's put the threat of war once again on the front burner, which uh, shows just how little he is able to stabilize his position. Uh, if he makes the threat too openly, his bluff will be called again. Uh, so he, he now has to find a way to voice his concern without literally putting uh, the PRC into a direct path of conflict with with Taiwan or the or Japan or the West and uh, right now he's been sending contradictory messages not only to Taiwan but to the outside world and to the party and the population inside uh, mainland China so he's now lost all of this credibility and uh, the question is how much longer can he remain in control uh, or at least even be seen to be in control if he if he doesn't find a way to back down and stabilize his position. Mm. He can't keep threatening war and then having to be proven to be unable to deliver it. So how would that reflect on the U.S. and China relations? Well, clearly what uh, Xi has been doing and the uh, and the uh, his office have been trying to intimidate uh, the supporters of, of Taiwan uh, and even the neutral foreign states like Australia and Japan and the Europeans and the like, who uh, basically tried to take a, a fairly low key approach to this election. They've uh, congratulated Taiwan for the excellent conduct of the election. Some have gone on to congratulate uh, President-elect Lai for his success. But it's, it's been fairly, you know, low-key sort of stuff. And yet Beijing under Xi has, has lambasted these allies for this. So this is not doing anything to build relations with, uh, with the United States or Japan or Australia. Indeed, when uh, Xi Jinping threatened Australia in the last couple of days uh, about expressing support for the election and for the DPP and, and President-elect Lai, uh, the Australian public reacted absolutely uh, the opposite way. They basically rejected China's threats. Uh, so what we're seeing is that the wolf warrior diplomacy is now having an almost 100% record of inciting the opposite response that Beijing wants. So, uh, and this has not gone unnoticed within the Communist Party of mm. China. So we have to expect some kind of of internal reaction to that. Some very good insights. Thank you so much, Gregory Copley, for this. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Denmark's King Frederick X ascended the throne on Sunday. He succeeded his mother, Queen Margarita II, who formally abdicated after 52 years as monarch. Here's more on that story. Huge crowds gathered in the Danish capital, Copenhagen, on Sunday to witness history as Denmark's King Frederick X acceded to the throne. He succeeds his mother, Queen Margrethe II, who formally abdicated after 52 years as monarch. 83-year-old Margrethe stunned the nation on New Year's Eve when she announced she would become the first Danish monarch in almost 900 years to voluntarily relinquish the throne. In attendance Sunday were Margrethe, Frederick, his Australian-born wife Mary, who is now queen, and their oldest son Christian, 18, who is the new heir to the throne. Denmark has one of the oldest monarchies in the world. Tens of thousands from all over the country braved the cold for the event, a sign of the popularity the monarchy enjoys in the nation of nearly six million. It's going to be interesting to see how he's going to cope being a, a king. It's a... Uh... It's a big change for him, but it's also a big change for the, uh, the Danish people. We are used to having a, a queen. That was emotional because, you know, after I'm 52 years old and he's been a part of my life the whole life, you know, and the way she has uh, uh, performed uh, is outstanding, I must say. The couple will continue to reside with Margrethe, who will retain her title as queen, in their respective palaces at the Amalienborg Royal Complex. A recent survey indicated that 82% of Danes expect Frederick to do well or very well in his new role, while 86% said the same about Mary. Heading to break, coming up, a U.S. fighter jet shoots down a Houthi missile fired at a Navy destroyer in the Red Sea. And more U.S. airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen this weekend in response to further attacks on commercial shipping. And Hamas terrorists put out a video of three hostages and along with a cryptic message. And Israel strikes back at Hezbollah in Lebanon after the terror group kills two Israeli civilians. Israelis rallied across the country and the world to mark 100 days since the start of the Israel-Gaza war. Find out what they are demanding. Welcome back. U.S. fighter jets shot down a cruise missile fired at a Navy destroyer yesterday in the Red Sea. That's according to U.S. Central Command. No injuries or damage were reported. CENTCOM said the missile was launched from a Houthi-controlled area of Yemen. CENTCOM says more strikes were carried out on a Houthi radar site over the weekend. It called it a follow-on action to the multinational attack on close to 30 Houthi locations last week. It comes after the White House said it was trying to avoid escalation. The U.S. and its allies have repeatedly warned the Iran-backed group there will be consequences if it continues to attack commercial shipping. The Hamas terrorist organization put out a video yesterday of three Israeli hostages along with a cryptic message that was just a few hours after saying the fate of many hostages had become uncertain. The terrorist group was threatening to execute hostages at the outset of the war. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the hostage crisis and other updates in the Israel-Hamas war. The 37-second video of Noah Argamani, Yossi Sharabi, and Itai Severski ends with a message, tomorrow we will inform you of their fate. 
The three were kidnapped and taken back to Gaza with roughly 240 other hostages in the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel over three months ago. Israel says over 130 are still in captivity and that at least 25 are dead. A Hamas spokesman on Sunday claimed many hostages may have been killed in Israeli airstrikes and that the fate of others has become unknown, calling any talks before a ceasefire, quote, worthless. Israeli officials have generally declined to respond to the terrorist group's public messaging on hostages, viewing it as psychological warfare. The Hamas spokesman also claimed several parties had told them of their plans to expand strikes against Israel in the coming days. Israel says negotiators struck a deal to get medicine delivered to hostages. Some logistical issues still need to be resolved, but the expectation is for Qatar to ship medicine to Egypt, then hand it over to the Hamas-run Gaza Ministry of Health through the Rafah crossing. A senior Hamas member thanked Qatar, saying hostages will be treated with whatever medicine reaches Palestinians in hospitals in Gaza. The White House Sunday said it's the right time for Israel to scale back its offensive in the Gaza Strip. NSC spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. is talking to Israel about transitioning to what he called low-intensity operations. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over the weekend said Israel's war against Hamas will go on until victory and will not be stopped by anyone. Not the Hague, not the axis of evil, and no one else. Netanyahu says Israel has no other choice and vowed to restore security to the south and north of Gaza. The leader made the comment after the International Court of Justice held two days of hearings on South Africa's genocide allegations against Israel. Israel rejected the charge as libel. It says its war is fought in self-defense, targeting Hamas, not Palestinians. Court rulings are binding, but the court has no way of enforcing them, and the case could go on for years. Also Sunday, Israeli jets hit targets in Lebanon after a Hezbollah missile attack in northern Israel killed two Israeli civilians, an elderly woman and her adult son. Earlier, the Israeli military reportedly killed four heavily armed terrorists trying to enter from Lebanon. The IDF said its forces were striking Hezbollah targets in retaliation. May their memory be blessed. Hezbollah is a murderous terrorist organization that kills civilians. Hezbollah's leader says his group won't stop until there's a ceasefire in Gaza. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Israelis across the country and the world marked 100 days since the start of the Israel-Gaza war. NTD's Daniel Monaghan has more on the event where families of hostages were joined by thousands in a 24-hour long rally dubbed 100 Days of Hell. The rally ended on Sunday night in a Tel Aviv plaza that became known as the Hostages Plaza. Of the 240 hostages who were kidnapped on October 7th, more than 130 are still held captive in Gaza. Their plight and the anguish of their families are deeply felt across Israeli society. 11-year-old Ziv Braslavsky says everyone wants his brother back home. I'm asking, asking the government to rescue the hostages, to bring them home. I'm missing my brother so much. Mirav Gonin's 23-year-old daughter, Romy, is being held hostage in Gaza. This was crime against humanity, not crimes against Israel. Gonin has a message for world leaders. Well, this is your responsibility too, uh, to make sure they're coming back home, all 136 uh, people. Ayelet Shahar says she is horrified her daughter Nama has become a symbol of the brutal October 7th Hamas terror attack. She has a message for her captors. Keep her safe. Bring her back home. Let her go back home to her mother, to her family. Ayelet speaks to her daughter Nama. Nama, if you hear me, if you see me, just hang in there. 
We're doing everything we can to bring you back. In London on Sunday, thousands of protesters gathered in Trafalgar Square at a pro-Israel rally also to call for the release of all hostages in Gaza. We mourn the loss of innocent Palestinians. We mourn the loss of innocent Israelis. And but I think people have forgotten how this began. The attack on October 7th killed more than 1,200 people, the biggest single-day loss of life since the founding of the State of Israel in 1948. And the shock was compounded by the multiple accounts of rape and sexual violence that emerged in the following weeks. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up next, we take a closer look at natural gas and power prices as America deals with severe winter conditions. Thousands of flights delayed and canceled as harsh weather blows over the U.S. We take a look at the impacts with the host of NTD Business, so stay tuned. Welcome back. Joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to discuss natural gas prices. U.S. natural gas and power prices hit multi-year highs recently amid cold weather. So Don, tell us more about what's happening. Yeah, so a cold freeze actually settled across the country uh, on Sunday. Windchill advisories and warnings uh, in effect for somewhere around 100 million Americans uh, this Sunday. And U.S. Ga US gas demand amid all this is forecasted to reach all-time uh, all all highs this week, according to financial firm LSEG. Uh, you know, but despite all this, actually, uh, despite the increasing demand, U.S. gas output was actually uh, on track to drop, uh, and U.S. national gas output fell to an 11-month low on Sunday and this is due to cold weather freezing wells across the country and some power plants actually shut uh, because again uh, of the cold weather uh, uh, freezing wells and other equipment needed uh, to uh, you know produce uh, natural gas and in some places natural gas prices shot up somewhere around 400 percent and th that's really incredible. And this is such as the prices at the key U.S. Henry Hub in Louisiana. And rising natural gas prices uh, could potentially be an indicator that traders are worried about uh, potential high demand and low lowering supply. Hmm. Yeah, you just said it's some really harsh weather we've been seeing. So what about power prices um, during the, this cold weather. Yeah, so as the cold weather moves to uh, the central and eastern parts of the country over the next few days, uh, a specific subset of electricity prices uh, at the Mid-Columbia hub in the Pacific Northwest soared to a record high. And we're seeing over $1,000 per megawatt hour, uh, according to LSEG data. Uh, so for some context to that number, in comparison to the average price, of 2023, it was only around $100. And if you compare that to 2022, it was only around $50. And of course, eyes are now on Texas because if you remember uh, back in 2021, severe weather actually caused a significant failure of the electric electricity grid. Uh, but you know, according to the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, uh, the state's grid uh, is in good shape this time mm -hmm. around. So that's good news. That's good. Yeah, and Texas Governor Abbott is saying that there is not gonna be a repeat. He's promising that that won't happen. And even in Texas, the grid operator is telling people to conserve electricity. So a lot going on here. But it's not just power that the weather's affecting, right, Don? 
Yeah, uh, it's, uh, as you mentioned before the break, uh, airports nationwide are experiencing thousands of delays and cancellations for the third day in a row. As of yesterday afternoon, over 1,000 flights were canceled and more than 4,000 were postponed, according to tracking site FlightAware. The nightmarish travel weekend saw more than 11,000 total flight delays, and this is the most affected airports uh, continue to be across the northern U.S. More than 80% of flights out of Buffalo were canceled as the surrounding areas braced for several feet of snow. Yeah, wow, and yes. it's that lake effect snow that's hit in western New York. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, resulting in a stress-filled weekend for travelers, but hey, safety first, right? So thank you so much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. Stick around, massive luxury skyscrapers or top-of-the-line education for all high schoolers. An economist shares her vision for an improved New York City, one that doesn't involve destroying history and displacing those who aren't wealthy. Good to have you back. Our next segment focuses on the metropolis that is New York City. The way it has developed has led to, to its being the most populous city in the country and a major economic driver with a GDP larger than the whole country of Saudi Arabia as of 2022. But is it as good as it can be? Yes, that's a good question and an answer involves discussion about where tax dollars are invested, how much big lobbies have influence in the political sphere, and whether the maximum political donation to city council members should be lower to say $250 from $1,600 to allow the average person to be able to make more of an impact. So yes, a lot of moving parts here. Let's take a look at your report, Kevin, uh, unpacking this human scale vision for New York City. I'm here in Hudson Yards in Manhattan where a massive development has undoubtedly brought jobs in its creation and tax revenue for the city. But is subsidizing and catering to big real estate the best way to benefit residents of the city? We hear a unique perspective on an alternative approach. We're joined now by Lynn Ellsworth, the chairwoman for the Alliance for a Human Scale City. Thank you for your time today, Lynn. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So in your view, why does New York City need to move away from this so-called real estate luxury vision and invest more in the public realm? Well, the luxury vision, which has its origins way back in time, you know, in the Bloomberg administration when Dan Doctoroff, uh, Bloomberg's economic development czar, wanted said that the way to develop New York City is to attract luxury businesses who can tolerate high rents and who market to wealthy people and who hire as their staffers kind of the upper middle class and wealthy to be the, the principal employees. The luxury city model has resulted in the demolition of a huge number of our historic neighborhoods in New York City. It has resulted in massive displacement of people who aren't wealthy. Now, Lynn, are you concerned that taking away assets from the real estate market will have an impact on the amount of tax revenue, given that 30% of New York's revenue comes from real estate taxes? 
Well, real estate taxes are paid by every property lot in the city. They're not just paid by big real estate. Vernado, for example, the third largest real estate investment trust in the country, or let's take the three big commercial property owners, SL Green, Vernado, and Brookfield. They own, as of a few years ago, from the Statistics and Commercial Observer, they own about 75% of all commercial property in New York. But they are the only people paying real estate taxes. I pay real estate taxes. So what's the best way to preserve the appeal of New York City? Is it allowing these massive projects to go with these iconic structures or to preserve more of the history and that historical element? Right, so Human Scale advocates for a different kind of economic development strategy that New York hasn't had for a very, very long time. I think there are sort of three things that we know help. Support to small businesses, nurturing and helping them grow and big and transform. Second, education. Why is it that all our high schools in New York don't have the same assets that, say, the ritzy, lovely Stuyvesant High School does? Third, we need to invest in the, the public realm, broadly speaking. And for me, that really includes the issue of improving our transit system. You know, we have a dispersed transit network across the Long Island Railroad, the subway system, Metro North, New Jersey Transit, and Amtrak. If we unify all those systems in a regional unified train network that's dispersed across the tri-state region, we spread economic development opportunity everywhere in the tri-state area. Some New Yorkers and a French tourist share their thoughts on whether the city should invest more in big real estate or the public realm. So I would say, um, you know, it would be a bit of both because without having these big spaces, um, where would you accommodate bringing in new skills and um, being able to have access to, to give access to all these new people coming to the city? I believe education and transit is far more important. Um, everyone needs education, everyone needs to be knowledgeable of things and people need to go places. So I feel like that's more of a better investment in my opinion. I think that it will be great to invest uh, both subjects because I think it will be some place for everything, for big corporate and for small entrepreneurs. I think that was a very good question to ask and a very interesting report. I looked into it a little bit a while ago and you know luxury units are definitely of no shortage in New York, right? A lot of it's sitting empty and apparently maybe something to look into it more but I've heard reports that say you know because those ultra wealthy in these buildings, high-rise buildings, they pres per, um, reserve a certain percentage for uh, low-income housing and then they get the, these tax breaks, billionaires have a way of avoiding these property taxes. So yeah, that's a very interesting question. Yeah, she makes a good point too, especially about nurturing these small businesses because they're a driving force in the city's economy. As of 2019, according to the SBA's Office of Advocacy, that's about half of the whole economy of New York City. Yeah. So let's dive into it more, but we are heading to a quick break for now. One minute and we'll be back. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. 
so there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are today's top stories. The Iowa caucuses are here, and former President Trump is still leading in the polls. We get a pre-game of the Iowa caucuses today with a political analyst. Extreme weather wreaks havoc over the weekend. Hear about the effects on travel, sport, and communities. The leader of the House and Senate have come up with a stopgap funding bill. Now the race is on to get it passed before government shutdown this Friday. The Taiwanese presidential election is over with William Lai as the winner. We look at what the Chinese regime thinks about this and what it could be planning in response. The U.S. hits more Houthi targets in Yemen and shoots down an anti-ship cruise missile fired at a destroyer in the Red Sea. Plus, the latest on the hostage crisis and the Israel-Hamas war. And a major volcanic eruption in Iceland with molten lava flowing into town as residents are forced to flee. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome, today is January 15th and Monday. Yes, and happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day, everyone. That's right, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Sure was a long, uh, long in the works to make this actually a national holiday. Yeah, well, 15 years after it was introduced, the yeah. bill was signed into law. Right. So. Once again, today is of course also important for another reason. It's the first test of the 2024 presidential election cycle. The Iowa caucuses have long been the initial event in the party primary calendar and will play a significant role in determining former President Trump's potential comeback bid. Additionally, this could influence Republicans who are looking for an alternative candidate to rally behind. According to the latest Iowa poll from NBC News, Trump currently maintains a considerable lead over his GOP rivals. Nearly 50% of likely caucus goers list the former president as their first choice candidate. In second place comes Nikki Haley with 20% and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is in third place with 16%. So let's get a pregame of the Iowa caucuses today with Jeff Kruger, a political analyst and TV radio host. Jeff, great to have you on the show this morning. Hey, Gavin, good morning. So Trump stayed away from the freezing temperatures in Iowa and it's weather that presented a challenge for candidates there and campaigns. So what curveball is this throwing them? You know, um, all of them had to cancel some events. Uh, I think all of them are worried, Kevin, about uh, some of their supporters not being able to get out due to the uh, horrible weather uh, to the caucuses. What I'm thinking, my analysis, is that uh, President Trump's uh, supporters are hardcore, they're committed, they're loyal. And if there's any group of uh, voters that are going to get to the caucuses, it's going to be uh, President Trump's uh, voters. I saw a report yesterday that 61% of Nikki Haley's uh, supporters there are only mildly invested in her. So I think she's got the weakest bond with her voters. President Trump has the strongest bond with his. So I think 
the weather situation might actually help President Trump. You're going to need some diehard supporters to come out today. I mean, that weather can cause frostbite in as little as 10 minutes, so very dangerous. Trump's trying to break the record in Iowa, and he's ahead in the polls for sure, but some analysts say Iowa sometimes surprises. But that said, is it important for Trump to break that 50% threshold to show that he is not vulnerable at all in this race? Boy, that would be huge if he did. As you pointed out in, in the poll results, he's close. He's got 48% right now. I mean, the record is a 12-point margin, and he's certainly going to beat that, Kevin. I'm going on record right now saying he's going to beat the record uh, as far as the margin of victory. Getting 50% is going to be uh, very difficult. He still could do it. What I'm looking at is Vivek Ramaswamy's uh, vote, because all those votes are really people that are invested in MAGA, the Make America Great Again uh, movement. So that's why you notice President Trump uh, makes some comments against Vivek, because he wants to make sure that as many of those voters vote for him and not do a, a protest vote with the Vivek Ramaswamy. So uh, as, as good as Vivek Ramaswamy does, that's gonna probably keep President Trump uh, below 50. If Vivek doesn't do as well as some of these polls indicate, and I think that'll help President Trump get over 50, because those really are, are the same voters that have the same beliefs uh, in the MAGA movement. So President Trump, former President Trump, he has set himself apart as the clear front runner here in Iowa. But the race for second place is important because these big donors are going to be watching whether, you know, DeSantis or Haley can pull ahead there. But who stands to gain the most from this second place finish? Boy, if DeSantis can somehow get into second place, he gets a big boost because everyone is pretty much thinking it's going to be Nikki Haley. You know, Haley's been getting the big money, uh, Kevin, in recent days. Uh, there was just uh, an announcement the other day that she's got a big event coming up in New York, a big fundraiser. A lot of Democrats are uh, getting behind her. And that's another key today. People can register Republican for the day and vote. A lot of people feel that those are going to be uh, Nikki Haley uh, voters. So the assumption is that she's going to be second and give her momentum going into New Hampshire, where independents and Democrats can vote. President Trump, remember, lost in 2016 in Iowa, was able to still get the nomination easily. So if he can win in Iowa, that helps him in all the uh, following states, including, of course, a big one in New Hampshire. So Haley's expected to come in second now. If DeSantis can somehow surge above her, that's going to help DeSantis stay in the race. Because if he fails miserably tonight, there are going to be people uh, calling on DeSantis to get out. Right. And Jeff, we'll just keep in mind that Haley does have an advantage there in New Hampshire. But just in 30 seconds, Trump formally criticized Ramaswamy for the first time on the public stage here. Is this a little bit of concern or is this just political banter? Is this going to jeopardize Ramaswamy's chance at a VP position or cabinet? I, I don't think it's going to uh, hurt his chances because I don't really think he's going to be the choice uh, anyway. Uh, but I do think Trump sees his uh, vote as really coming right out of his. So he wants to pad that margin and he wants to let people know, hey, I'm the real deal. I'm the real MAGA candidate, not Vivek. I'm the guy that started this, vote for me. So I think it was predictable that eventually he's gone after everybody else. He would go after Vivek to try to solidify his vote. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Jeff Career, political analyst and TV radio host. Thanks, Kevin. Heavy snow blanketed roads, driveways, and streets over the weekend. This after a severe winter storm brought many cities in the United States to a near standstill. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the cold snap. Dangerous freezing temperatures affected sports events and travel across the country. 
Driving in Oklahoma on Sunday was a matter of utmost caution with nearly whiteout conditions. Roads in Wapalo, Iowa were nearly impassable as snow drifts and ice covered the roadways. In Portland, Oregon, a winter storm caused a tree to smash a police cruiser. Over a hundred trees toppled near Portland on Saturday, including one that fell on a house and killed a man. On the other side of the country in Portland, Maine, a neighborhood landmark was washed away during a record high tide. Millions were under the threat of flooding from days of heavy rain and snow. An airport in Buffalo is hit by fierce winds and snow-covered runways, forcing it to cancel over 100 flights. And the Buffalo Bills-Pittsburgh Steelers NFL playoff game had to be postponed from Sunday to Monday. Here, steam from a large cloud of water vapor hovers over Lake Michigan as an Arctic blast from Canada swept across the United States. The blast led to power outages for hundreds of thousands of customers in the Northeast and Pacific Northwest. The Arctic storms also left four dead. The National Weather Service has issued a stark warning with over 95 million people under wind chill advisories and some states expecting wind chills to plummet to a bone chilling minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Back to politics, House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Leader Chuck Schumer unveiled a new short-term spending bill yesterday. It would keep the government funded in a two-step process through March 1st and then again through March 8th. This proposal would replace another short-term funding bill set to expire this Friday. Schumer says he expects to bring the new bill to the Senate as early as tomorrow. House conservatives are upset with the legislation, with several voicing their concerns on social media. If passed, the bill would fund several agencies through March 1st. The rest of the government, including the Defense Department, would be funded through March 8th. The stopgap proposal must still make it through Congress before heading to President Biden's desk. After the break, we look closer at the Taiwanese presidential election and the Chinese regime's response to the winner as tensions heat up in the region. A U.S. fighter jet shoots down a Houthi missile fired at a Navy destroyer in the Red Sea. And more U.S. airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen this weekend after more attacks on commercial shipping. Also, a volcanic eruption in Iceland has forced residents to flee as molten lava burns up homes. Thanks for staying with us. Taiwan has just elected a new president. William Lai's win makes the first election of the year a triumph against the totalitarian regime in Beijing. It marks an unprecedented third consecutive term for Lai's party, the Democratic Progressive Party. Lai won 40 percent of the vote, Ho Yi from the main opposition party taking 33 percent. Third party candidate Ko Wenjie won 26 percent. In his victory speech, Lai reiterated Taiwan's direction, expressing determination to uphold democracy and freedom, even under threats from the CCP. He also said Taiwan is not a bargaining chip between the U.S. and China. Lai will be sworn in this May. His victory marks the first time ever that a political party in Taiwan gets to stay in power after two terms.
Beijing responded quickly to William Lai's win, claiming the victory doesn't represent the island's mainstream public opinion because Taiwan is part of China. China accused the U.S. of sending a gravely wrong signal to those supporting Taiwan's independence. That's after Secretary of State Antony Blinken congratulated President-elect William Lai. The Chinese regime claimed Blinken's words violated U.S. commitment to maintain unofficial ties with Taiwan. And Russia's foreign ministry is also chiming in. Its spokeswoman saying Moscow will continue to view Taiwan as an integral part of China. Worth noting, though, the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled Taiwan. Earlier, I spoke with Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association. I asked him about what kind of message the Taiwanese elections sent to China. Well, it sends to China the clear message that Xi Jinping made the wrong approach in trying to influence this election so openly and was then seen to fail in that attempt. So Xi Jinping now has one more embarrassment to add to his list, one more failure which, for which he will be punished by the elders of the uh, Communist Party of China. So he is now in a much more precarious position than he was uh, even a few weeks ago, and it was already a, a dire situation for him then. So he is now going to have to be looking for ways to shore up his position. There will clearly be some more blustering with regard to Taiwan, mm. more uh, PLA forces deployed to l give the appearance of a bold response to the election. But he dare not go much beyond that because the PLA will start to object and the P their party elders will almost certainly uh, start to move against him if, he's, uh, if he is too precipitate. How do you think China will be reacting now? Well, the, the party elders and the PLA basically pushed Xi to admit, as he did in San Francisco recently, that the PLA was not ready for war with Taiwan. Uh, and that's perhaps a, a gross understatement. Uh, now he's put the threat of war once again on the front burner, which uh, shows just how little he is able to stabilize his position. Uh, if he makes the threat too openly, his bluff will be called again. Uh, so he, he now has to find a way to voice his concern without literally putting uh, the PRC into a direct uh, path of conflict with, with Taiwan or, the, or Japan or the West. Some very good insights. Thank you so much, Gregory Copley, for this. I appreciate it. And U.S. fighter jets shot down a cruise missile fired at a Navy destroyer yesterday in the Red Sea. That's according to U.S. Central Command. No injuries or damage were reported. CENTCOM said the missile was launched from a Houthi-controlled area of Yemen. CENTCOM says more strikes were carried out on a Houthi radar site over the weekend. It called it a follow-on action to the multinational attack on close to 30 Houthi locations last week. It comes after the White House said it was trying to avoid escalation. The U.S. and its allies have repeatedly warned the Iran-backed group there will be consequences if it continues to attack commercial shipping. And the Hamas terrorist organization put out a video yesterday of three Israeli hostages along with a cryptic message that was just a few hours after saying the fate of many hostages had become uncertain. The terrorist group was threatening to execute hostages at the outset of the war. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the hostage crisis and other updates in the Israel-Hamas war. 
The 37-second video of Noah Argamani, Yossi Sharabi, and Itai Severski ends with a message, Tomorrow we will inform you of their fate. The three were kidnapped and taken back to Gaza with roughly 240 other hostages in the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel over three months ago. Israel says over 130 are still in captivity and that at least 25 are dead. A Hamas spokesman on Sunday claimed many hostages may have been killed in Israeli airstrikes and that the fate of others has become unknown, calling any talks before a ceasefire, quote, worthless. Israeli officials have generally declined to respond to the terrorist group's public messaging on hostages, viewing it as psychological warfare. Israel says negotiators struck a deal to get medicine delivered to hostages. Some logistical issues still need to be resolved, but the expectation is for Qatar to ship medicine to Egypt, then hand it over to the Hamas-run Gaza Ministry of Health through the Rafah crossing. The White House Sunday said it's the right time for Israel to scale back its offensive in the Gaza Strip. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over the weekend said Israel's war against Hamas will go on until victory and will not be stopped by anyone. Not the Hague, not the axis of evil, and no one else. Netanyahu says Israel has no other choice and vowed to restore security to the south and north of Gaza. The leader made the comment after the International Court of Justice held two days of hearings on South Africa's genocide allegations against Israel. Also Sunday, Israeli jets hit targets in Lebanon after a Hezbollah missile attack in northern Israel killed two Israeli civilians, an elderly woman and her adult son. Earlier, the Israeli military reportedly killed four heavily armed terrorists trying to enter from Lebanon. The IDF said its forces were striking Hezbollah targets in retaliation. May their memory be blessed. Hezbollah is a murderous terrorist organization that kills civilians. Hezbollah's leader says his group won't stop until there's a ceasefire in Gaza. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Israeli soccer player Sagiv Yehezkel was suspended from his Turkish club yesterday. That was for showing support for hostages being held by the Hamas terror group while he was celebrating a goal. A Turkish state broadcaster said Yehezkel is being detained by police for, quote, instigating the public to hatred and hostility. After scoring a goal, the Israeli player made a heart sign with his hands to the camera. His wristband had the words 100 days October 7th, along with the Star of David. Shortly after the match, the Turkish soccer team said on social media the player was being suspended until further notice. It's still not clear if the team suspended or fired him. Yehezgul reportedly said he did not act to provoke anybody and wants the war to end. Thousands of protesters gathered in downtown Washington on Saturday, calling for a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. It was one of the largest pro-Palestine demonstrations in the U.S. Capitol to date. The protesters repeated their call for President Biden to stop sending arms to Israel. Many chanted, free Palestine and ceasefire now. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry claims more than 23,000 have died in the Strip since Israel retaliated. The rally in D.C. followed a similar one held in London over the weekend. And moving to some uh, other news in Iceland, a volcano erupted in southwest Iceland yesterday. Authorities reported no loss of life, but is causing widespread damage. Molten lava flows reached the outskirts of the small fishing town of Grindavik by mid-afternoon. The lava set some houses on fire, although the town was evacuated earlier and no one was in danger. The eruption began early on Sunday north of the town. Just hours earlier, it was evacuated amid a swarm of seismic activity. We had this eruption uh, started just before 8 o'clock this morning. 
Uh, it was on the area where we have been expecting it to come, but uh, unfortunately it, it went a little bit more south than, than we had hoped for. Authorities built barriers of earth and rock in recent weeks to try and prevent lava from reaching Grindavik. But the latest eruption penetrated the town's defenses. But then around noon we had a new shock when a fissure opened within the town and there is lava flowing up from that fissure. Iceland's Prime Minister Katrín Jakobsdóttir said the government will be meeting Monday to discuss housing measures for evacuated residents. Police are working with scientists to assess the situation and are looking at what actions can be taken to protect the town's infrastructure. The reason for Iceland's intense volcanic activity is its position on the boundary of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. It's an underwater mountain range that stretches all the way from the Arctic to the southern tip of Africa. This is not the first time Grindavik's residents have been asked to evacuate over seismic activity. In November, many smaller eruptions forced townspeople to leave. Some have not returned since and have been living in temporary accommodations. The last eruption that was on the 18th of December, that was further away and that didn't bother us at all. There was nothing to worry about, basically. So we were kind of hoping it would you know, be coming up there or even farther, further away from us. But the worst case scenario just happened and that's, that's what we're dealing with. The Grindavik resident, along with his brothers, said they were worried but remained optimistic. But hopefully, hopefully this will only last for one or two days like, like last eruption. It went up, it was very big, but the morning after it was almost over. As the government scrambles to act, the future is uncertain for Grindavik's residents. It's a tough thought to think that that this town might be over and I would have to start all over somewhere else. But if that's the case, then that's exactly what we'll do. The recent eruption is the fifth in the region since 2021. Iceland has over 30 active volcanoes. And for some updates, again, in Israel, at least 14 people are wounded in the car ramming incident near Tel Aviv, according to the Magen David Adom ambulance service, which took place at three separate locations. The victims include a woman in her 70s who has died and a man aged 34 and a 16-year-old in serious condition. The incident is still under investigation, but spokesman Eli Levy, Levy says it looks like a terrorist incident. Yeah, and according to the Times of Israel, medics say it was also a stabbing attack, too. That's right, yeah. So, of course, terrorist attacks like this in Israel are not rare. But, of course, in times like this, it just adds another layer of complications. So. And our hearts go out to the victims' families, and hopefully the wounded can heal very quickly. Yes. All right, uh, on this note, we are ending this show right here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.